Section 13 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Tuesday, 14th September. Dr. Johnson said in the morning, Is not this a fine lady? There was not a word now of his impatience to be in civilised life. Though indeed, I should beg pardon, he found it here. We had slept well and lain long. After breakfast we surveyed the castle and the garden. Mr. Bethune, the parish minister, Magnus MacLeod of Claggan, brother to Talisker, and MacLeod of Bay, two substantial gentlemen of the clan, dined with us. We had admirable venison, generous wine. In a word, all that a good table has. This was really the hall of a chief. Lady MacLeod had been much obliged to my father, who had settled by arbitration a variety of perplexed claims between her and her relation, the Laird of Brodie, which she now repaid by particular attention to me. MacLeod started the subject of making women do penance in the church for fornication. Johnson, it is right, sir. Infamy is attached to the crime by universal opinion as soon as it is known. I would not be the man who would discover it, if I alone knew it, for a woman may reform. Nor would I commend a parson who divulges a woman's first offence. But being once divulged, it ought to be infamous. Consider of what importance to society the chastity of women is. Upon that all the property in the world depends. We hang a thief for stealing a sheep but the unchastity of a woman transfers sheep and farm and all from the right owner. I have much more reverence for a common prostitute than for a woman who conceals her guilt. The prostitute is known. She cannot deceive. She cannot bring a strumpet into the arms of an honest man without his knowledge. Boswell. There is, however, a great difference between the licentiousness of a single woman and that of a married woman. Johnson. Yes, sir, there is a great difference between stealing a shilling and stealing a thousand pounds, between simply taking a man's purse and murdering him first, and then taking it. But when one begins to be vicious, it is easy to go on. Where single women are licentious, you rarely find faithful married women. Boswell. And yet we are told that in some nations in India the distinction is strictly observed. Johnson. Nay, don't give us India. That puts me in mind of Montesquieu, who is really a fellow of genius too in many respects. Whenever he wants to support a strange opinion, he quotes you the practice of Japan or of some other distant country of which he knows nothing. To support polygamy, he tells you of the island of Formosa, where there are ten women born for one man. He had but to suppose another island, where there are ten men born for one woman and so make a marriage between them. At supper, Lady MacLeod mentioned Dr. Cadogan's book on the gout. Johnson, it is a good book in general, but a foolish one in particulars. It is good in general, as recommending temperance and exercise and cheerfulness. In that respect, it is only Dr. Cheney's book told in a new way, and there should come out such a book every thirty years, dressed in the mode of the times. It is foolish in maintaining that the gout is not hereditary, and that one fit of it when gone is like a fever when gone. 
Lady MacLeod objected that the author does not practice what he teaches. Johnson. I cannot help that, madam. That does not make his book the worse. People are influenced more by what a man says if his practice is suitable to it, because they are blockheads. The more intellectual people are, the readier will they attend to what a man tells them. If it is just, they will follow it, be his practice what it will. No man practices so well as he writes. I have all my life long been lying till noon, yet I tell all young men and tell them with great sincerity that nobody who does not rise early will ever do any good. Only consider. You read a book, you are convinced by it, you do not know the author. Suppose you afterwards know him and find that he does not practice what he teaches. Are you to give up your former conviction? At this rate you will be kept in a state of equilibrium when reading every book till you know how the author practised. But, said Lady MacLeod, you would think better of Dr. Cadogan if he acted according to his principles. Johnson. Why, madam, to be sure, a man who acts in the face of light is worse than a man who does not know so much. Yet I think no man should be the worst thought of for publishing good principles. There is something noble in publishing truth, though it condemns oneself. I expressed some surprise at Cadungan's recommending good humour, as if it were quite in our own power to attain it. Johnson. Why, sir, a man grows better humoured as he grows older. He improves by experience. When young, he thinks of himself of great consequence and everything of importance. As he advances in life, he learns to think himself of no consequence and little things of little importance, and so he becomes more patient and better pleased. All good humour and complacence are required. Naturally, a child seizes directly what it sees and thinks of pleasing itself only. By degrees it is taught to please others and to prefer others, and that this will ultimately produce the greatest happiness. If a man is not convinced of that, he never will practice it. Common language speaks the truth as to this. We say, a person is well-bred. As it is said, that all material motion is primarily in a right line, and is never persecutum, never in another form, unless by some particular cause, so it may be said intellectual motion is. Lady MacLeod asked if no man was naturally good. Johnson, no, madam, no more than a wolf. Boswell, nor no woman, sir? Johnson, no, sir. Lady MacLeod started at this, saying in a low voice, This is worse than swift. MacLeod of Allenish had come in the afternoon. We were a jovial company at supper. The laird, surrounded by so many of his clan, was to me a pleasing sight. They listened with wonder and pleasure, while Dr. Johnson harangued. I am vexed that I cannot take down his full strain of eloquence. Wednesday, 15th September The gentlemen of the clan went away early in the morning to the harbour of Lochbridale to take leave of some of their friends who were going to America. It was a very wet day. We looked at Rory Moore's horn, which is a large cow's horn, with the mouth of it ornamented with silver curiously carved. It holds rather more than a bottle and a half. Every laird of MacLeod, it is said, must, as a proof of his manhood, drink it off full of claret without laying it down.
from Rory Moor many of the branches of the family are descended, in particular the Talisker branch, so that his name is much talked of. We also saw his bow, which hardly any man now can bend, and his claymore, which was wielded with both hands and is of a prodigious size. We saw here some old pieces of iron armour, immensely heavy. The broadsword now used, though called the Glaymore, i.e. the great sword, is much smaller than that used in Rory Moore's time. There is hardly a target now to be found in the Highlands. After the disarming act, they made them serve as covers to their buttermilk barrels, a kind of change like beating spears into pruning hooks. Sir George Mackenzie's works, the folio edition, happened to lie in a window in the dining room. I asked Dr. Johnson to look at the characteres advocatorum. He allowed him power of mind, and that he understood very well what he tells, but said that there was too much declamation, and that the Latin was not correct. He found fault with our propinquibant, in the character of Gilmore. I tried him with the opposition between Gloria and Palma, in the comparison between Gilmore and Nisbet, which Lord Hales, in his catalogue of the Lords of Session, thinks difficult to be understood. The words are penes illum gloria, penes hunc palma. In a short account of the Kirk of Scotland, which I published some years ago, I applied these words to the two contending parties, and explained them thus. The popular party has most eloquence, Dr. Robertson's party most influence. I was very desirous to hear Dr. Johnson's explication. Johnson, I see no difficulty. Gilmore was admired for his parts. Nisbet carried his cause by his skill in law. Palmer is victory. I observed that the character of Nicholson in this book resembled that of Burke, for it is said in one place, in omnes lusus et jocos sesepe resolvebat, and in another, Sed accipitris morue conspectu aliquando astantium sublimi se protrahens volatu, in pridum miro impetu descendebat. Johnson, no, sir, I never heard Merck make a good joke in my life. Boswell, but, sir, you will allow he is a hawk. Dr. Johnson, thinking that I meant this of his joking, said, No, sir, he is not the hawk there, he is the beetle in the mire. I still adhered to my metaphor. But he soars as the hawk. Johnson, yes, sir, but he catches nothing. MacLeod asked, what is the particular excellence of Burke's eloquence? Johnson, copiousness and fertility of allusion, a power of diversifying his matter by placing it in various relations. Burke has great information and great command of language though, in my opinion, it has not in every respect the highest elegance. Boswell. Do you think, sir, that Burke has read Cicero much? Johnson. I don't believe it, sir. Burke has great knowledge, great fluency of words, and great promptness of ideas, so that he can speak with great illustration on any subject that comes before him. He is neither like Cicero, nor like Demosthenes, nor like anyone else, but speaks as well as he can. In the sixty-fifth page of the first volume of Sir George Mackenzie, Dr. Johnson pointed out a paragraph beginning with Aristotle, and told me there was an error in the text, which he bade me try to discover. I was lucky enough to hit it at once. 
as the passage is printed it is said that the devil answers even in engines i corrected it to ever in enigmas sir said he you are a good critic this would have been a great thing to do in the text of an ancient author thursday sixteenth september last night much care was taken of dr johnson who was still distressed by his cold he had hitherto most strangely slept without a nightcap miss macleod made him a large flannel one and he was prevailed with to drink a little brandy when he was going to bed he has great virtue in not drinking wine or any fermented liquor because as he acknowledged to us he could not do it in moderation lady macleod would hardly believe him and said i am sure sir you would not carry it too far johnson nay madam it carried me i took the opportunity of a long illness to leave it off it was then prescribed to me not to drink wine and having broken off the habit i have never returned to it in the argument on tuesday night about natural goodness dr johnson denied that any child was better than another but by difference of instruction though in consequence of greater attention being paid to instruction by one child than another and of a variety of imperceptible causes such as instruction being counteracted by servants a notion was conceived that of two children equally well educated one was naturally much worse than another he owned this morning that one might have a greater aptitude to learn than another and that we inherit dispositions from our parents i inherited said he a vile melancholy from my father which has made me mad all my life at least not sober lady macleod wondered he should tell this madam said i he knows that with that madness he is superior to other men i have often been astonished with what exactness and perspicuity he will explain the process of any art he this morning explained to us all the operation of coining, and at night all the operation of brewing, so very clearly that Mr. McQueen said when he heard the first he thought he had been bred in the mint, when he heard the second that he had been bred a brewer. I was elated by the thought of having been able to entice such a man to this remote part of the world a ludicrous yet just image presented itself to my mind which i expressed to the company i compared myself to a dog who has got hold of a large piece of meat and runs away with it to a corner where he may devour it in peace without any fear of others taking it from him in london reynolds beauclerk and all of them are contending who shall enjoy dr johnson's conversation we are feasting upon it undisturbed at dunvegan it was still a storm of wind and rain. Dr. Johnson, however, walked out with MacLeod and saw Rory Moore's cascade in full perfection. Colonel MacLeod, instead of being all life and gaiety, as I have seen him, was at present grave and somewhat depressed by his anxious concern about MacLeod's affairs and by finding some gentlemen of the clan by no means disposed to act a generous or affectionate part to their chief in his distress but bargaining with him as with a stranger however he was agreeable and polite and dr johnson said he was a very pleasing man my fellow-traveller and i talked of going to sweden and while we were settling our plan 
I expressed a pleasure in the prospect of seeing the king. Johnson, I doubt, sir, if he would speak to us. Colonel MacLeod said, I'm sure Mr. Boswell would speak to him. But seeing me a little disconcerted by his remark, he politely added, and with great propriety. Here let me offer a short defence of that propensity in my disposition to which this gentleman alluded. It has procured me much happiness. I hope it does not deserve so hard a name as either forwardness or impudence. If I know myself, it is nothing more than an eagerness to share the society of men distinguished either by their rank or their talents, and a diligence to attain what I desire. If a man is praised for seeking knowledge, though mountains and seas are in his way, may he not be pardoned, whose ardour in the pursuit of the same object leads him to encounter difficulties as great, though of a different kind? After the ladies were gone from table, we talked of the Highlanders not having sheets, and this led us to consider the advantage of wearing linen. Johnson. All animal substances are less cleanly than vegetables. Wool, of which flannel is made, is an animal substance. Flannel, therefore, is not so cleanly as linen. I remember I used to think tar dirty, but when I knew it to be only a preparation of the juice of the pine, I thought so no longer. It is not disagreeable to have the gum that oozes from a plum tree upon your fingers because it is a vegetable, but if you have any candle grease, any tallow upon your fingers, you are uneasy till you rub it off. I have often thought that if I kept a seraglio, the ladies should all wear linen gowns or cotton, I mean stuffs made of vegetable substances. I would have no silk. You cannot tell when it is clean. It will be very nasty before it is perceived to be so. Linen detects its own dirtiness. To hear the grave Dr. Samuel Johnson, that majestic teacher of moral and religious wisdom, while sitting solemn in an armchair in the Isle of Skye, talk ex-cathedra of his keeping a seraglio, and acknowledge that the supposition had often been in his thoughts, struck me so forcibly with ludicrous contrast that I could not but laugh immoderately. He was too proud to submit, even for a moment, to be the object of ridicule, and instantly retaliated with such keen sarcastic wit, and such a variety of degrading images, of every one of which I was the object, that though I can bear such attacks as well as most men, I yet found myself so much the sport of all the company, that I would gladly expunge from my mind every trace of this severe retort. Talking of our friend Langton's house in Lincolnshire, he said, The old house of the family was burnt. A temporary building was erected in its room, and to this day they have been always adding as the family increased. It is like a shirt made for a man when he was a child, and enlarged always as he grows older. We talked tonight of Luther's allowing the Landgrave of Hesse two wives, and it was with the consent of the wife to whom he was first married. Johnson. There was no harm in this, so far as she was only concerned, because Valentine known fit injuria. But it was an offence against the general order of society, and against the law of the gospel, by which one man and one woman are to be united. No man can have two wives, but by preventing somebody else from having one. Friday, 17th September After dinner yesterday, we had a conversation upon cunning. 
MacLeod said that he was not afraid of cunning people, but would let them play their tricks about him like monkeys. But, said I, they'll scratch. And Mr. McQueen added, they'll invent new tricks as soon as you find out what they do. Johnson. Cunning has effect from the credulity of others, rather than from the abilities of those who are cunning. It requires no extraordinary talents to lie and deceive. This led us to consider whether it did not require great abilities to be very wicked. Johnson. It requires great abilities to have the power of being very wicked, but not to be very wicked. A man who has the power which great abilities procure him may use it well or ill, and it requires more abilities to use it well than to use it ill. Wickedness is always easier than virtue, for it takes a short cut to everything. It is much easier to steal a hundred pounds than to get it by labour or any other way. Consider only what act of wickedness requires great abilities to commit it, when once the person who is to do it has the power, for there is the distinction. It requires great abilities to conquer an army, but none to massacre it after it is conquered. The weather this day was rather better than any that we had since we came to Dunvegan. Mr. McQueen had often mentioned a curious piece of antiquity near this, which he called a temple of the goddess Aniatis. Having often talked of going to see it, he and I set out after breakfast, attended by his servant, a fellow quite like a savage. I must observe here that in Skye there seems to be much idleness, for men and boys follow you as colts follow passengers upon a road. The usual figure of a sky boy is a lawn with bare legs and feet, a dirty kilt, ragged coat and waistcoat, a bare head and a stick in his hand, which I suppose is partly to help the lazy rogue to walk, partly to serve as a kind of a defensive weapon. We walked what is called two miles, but is probably four, from the castle, till we came to the sacred place. The country around is a black dreary moor on all sides except to the sea coast, towards which there is a view through a valley, and the farm of Bay shows some good land. The place itself is green ground, being well drained by means of a deep glen on each side, in both of which there runs a rivulet with a good quantity of water, forming several cascades, which make a considerable appearance and sound. The first thing we came to was an earthen mound or dyke, extending from the one precipice to the other. A little farther on was a strong stone wall, not high but very thick, extending in the same manner. On the outside of it were the ruins of two houses, one on each side of the entry or gate to it. The wall is built all along of uncemented stones, but of so large a size as to make a very firm and durable rampart. It has been built all about the consecrated ground, except where the precipice is steep enough to form an enclosure of itself. The sacred spot contains more than two acres. There are within it the ruins of many houses, none of them large, a cairn, and many graves marked by clusters of stones. Mr. McQueen insisted that the ruin of a small building, standing east and west, was actually the temple of the goddess Aniatis, where her statue was kept, and from whence processions were made to wash it in one of the brooks. There is, it must be owned, a hollow road visible for a good way from the entrance. 
but Mr. McQueen, with the keen eye of an antiquary, traced it much farther than I could perceive it. There is not above a foot and a half in height of the walls now remaining, and the whole extent of the building was never, I imagine, greater than an ordinary highland house. Mr. McQueen has collected a great deal of learning on the subject of the Temple of Aniatis, and I had endeavoured in my journal to state such particulars as might give some idea of it, and of the surrounding scenery. But from the great difficulty of describing visible objects, I found my account so unsatisfactory that my readers will probably have exclaimed, And write about it, goddess, and about it, and therefore I have omitted it. When we got home and were again at table with Dr. Johnson, we first talked of portraits. He agreed in thinking them valuable in families. I wished to know which he preferred, fine portraits or those of which the merit was resemblance. Johnson. Sir, their chief excellence is being like. Boswell. Are you of that opinion as to the portraits of ancestors whom one has never seen? Johnson. It then becomes of more consequence that they should be like, and I would have them in the dress of the times, which makes a piece of history. One should like to see how Rory Moore looked. Truth, sir, is of the greatest value in these things. Mr. McQueen observed that if you think it of no consequence whether portraits are like, if they are but well painted, you may be indifferent whether a piece of history is true or not, if well told. Dr. Johnson said at breakfast today that it was but of late that historians bestowed pains and attention in consulting records to attain to accuracy. Bacon, in writing his history of Henry the Seventh, does not seem to have consulted any, but to have just taken what he found in other histories and blended it with what he learnt by tradition. He agreed with me that there should be a chronicle kept in every considerable family, to preserve the characters and transactions of successive generations. After dinner, I started the subject of the Temple of Aniatis. Mr. McQueen had laid stress on the name given to the place by the country people, Ainit, and added, I knew not what to make of this place of antiquity till I met with the Aniatidis de Lubrum in Lydia mentioned by Pausanias and the elder Pliny. Dr. Johnson, with his usual acuteness, examined Mr. McQueen as to the meaning of the word Ainit in Erse, and it proved to be a water-place, or a place near water, which, said Mr. McQueen, agrees with all the descriptions of the temples of that goddess, which were situated near rivers, that there might be water to wash the statue. Johnson, nay, sir, the argument from the name is gone. The name is exhausted by what we see. We have no occasion to go to a distance for what we can pick up under our feet. Had it been an accidental name, the similarity between it and an Aniatis might have had something in it, but it turns out to be a mere physiological name. MacLeod said Mr. McQueen's knowledge of etymology had destroyed his conjecture. Johnson, you have one possibility for you and all possibilities against you. It is possible it may be the temple of Aniatis, but it is also possible that it may be a fortification, or it may be a place of Christian worship, as the first Christians often chose remote and wild places to make an impression on the mind. Or if it was a heathen temple, it may have been built near a river for the purpose of lustration. 
and there is such a multitude of divinities to whom it may have been dedicated that the chance of its being a temple of Aniatis is hardly anything. It is like throwing a grain of sand upon the seashore today and thinking you may find it tomorrow. No, sir, this temple, like many an ill-built edifice, tumbles down before it is roofed in. In his triumph over the reverent antiquarian, he indulged himself in a conceit, for some vestige of the altar of the goddess being much insisted on in support of the hypothesis, he said, Mr. McQueen is fighting pro aris et focis. It was wonderful how well time passed in a remote castle and in dreary weather. After supper we talked of Pennant. It was objected that he was superficial. Dr. Johnson defended him warmly. He said, Pennant has greater variety of inquiry than almost any man, and has told us more than perhaps one in ten thousand could have done in the time that he took. He has not said what he was to tell, so you cannot find fault with him for what he has not told. If a man comes to look for fishes, you cannot blame him if he does not attend to fowls. But, said Colonel MacLeod, he mentions the unreasonable rise of rents in the highlands and says the gentlemen are for emptying the bag without filling it for that is the phrase he uses why does he not tell how to fill it johnson sir there is no end of negative criticism he tells what he observes and as much as he chooses if he tells what is not true you may find fault with him but though he tells us that the land is not well cultivated he is not obliged to tell how it may be well cultivated. If I tell that many of the Highlanders go barefooted, I am not obliged to tell how they may get shoes. Pennant tells a fact. He need go no farther except he pleases. He exhausts nothing, and no subject whatever has yet been exhausted. But Pennant has surely told a great deal. Here is a man six feet high, and you are angry because he is not seven. Notwithstanding this eloquent oratio pro penantio, which they who have read this gentleman's tours and recollect the savage and the shopkeeper at Monboddo will probably impute to the spirit of contradiction, I still think that he had better have given more attention to fewer things than have thrown together such a number of imperfect accounts. End of section 13